the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Well, hello, everybody. It's Wine Women Radio. I'm Marsha Maycumber here today with Misty Rhoda Bush Kane. Hello, Misty. How are you? Hello, Marsha. I'm fantastic. Good. It's been a pretty typical July weather that we're coming to the end of the month here. And when the podcast comes out, um, it'll be the, the beginning of August, which means we're pretty much smack dab in the middle of Eurasian right now. And uh, we're seeing temperatures start to climb as they usually do uh, as we're going in towards late summer and, and everybody starts planning harvest. So I, are you hearing about harvest plantings uh, going on at St. Supery right now? Yeah, we, we are getting excited with Eurasian. So we're looking at the consistency of all of our fruit and um, nothing in the works yet um, in terms of harvest, actual harvesting. That will be probably a couple weeks down the road, but we're getting excited and we're, you know, starting to make all the preparations and getting the seller ready for um, all of the upcoming work ahead. Nice. Well, I'm hearing similar things and even from some people saying uh, this year might be the first year that feels like a normal harvest, meaning uh, it's still many weeks away for a lot of people. And uh, for a lot of people, particularly those who will be harvesting red wines, um, which means they're starting with red grapes, but we won't get into all those details yet. Uh, they won't, may not be harvesting until the end of September and into October and even early November. So a good thing. We got a little bit of time. Um, I wanted to kick off with a little bit of industry news, and it's more in the vein of congratulating women who are doing really well in the industry and are being recognized for their contributions. Um, first thing was the news that came out, I think, yesterday, Misty, that Carolyn Wente, who is um, uh, in charge of Wente Vineyards in uh, Livermore, has been in this industry Oh, I want to say at least 30 years, um, but one of the, the leading women in the industry um, and a fourth generation member of her family to leave Wente Vineyards. Um, she has been awarded the Grand Dame Award by Les Dames d'Escoffier International. So uh, bravo for uh, Carolyn. She is the 16th recipient of this international honor uh, and the specific award, the Grand Dame Award, honors a lifetime of outstanding professional achievement, excellence, and charitable community contributions within the culinary industry and is bestowed annually. So I think that's pretty cool. And the other fun awards that were announced, completely unrelated, uh, was the ASEV President's Award for Enology was given to Rachel Allison who is a PhD candidate in food science at Cornell University. And the ASEB President's Award for Viticulture was awarded to Jacqueline Fiola, also a PhD candidate. Uh, she's in vineyard soils at Virginia Polytech Institute and State University. So they each receive a very hefty scholarship for exceeding expectations of the traditional ASAB scholarship program as well as demonstrating their leadership 
capacity. I had the wrong word there at the end. Leadership capacity. So bravo to the ladies. Yes. And my last little announcement, maybe we'll come back to this at the end, I don't know, is uh, Wine Women has an in-person event coming up in the beginning of September that's really kind of exciting. As you know, Wine Women is um, our, our founding institution under which Wine Women Radio Hour uh, lives under that umbrella and is a nonprofit supporting women in the wine industry and helping them accelerate their careers through training, uh, education, networking, and leadership programs. Um, they will have a program on September 9th, uh, which is a Wednesday at Beyonce Winery in Sonoma, 5 p.m. And it's called Combating Wine Fraud with guest speaker Maureen Downey, who is really one of the most foremost experts in wine fraud in the world. And uh, she works out of the Bay Area. So I think that's really cool because I happen to recall from seven, several years ago with Wine Women that um, we've been trying to line up getting her as a guest speaker at a, a live event for several years. So I'm delighted to see it's come to fruition. So they, they have said it's all going to be socially distanced and uh, meet all of the health, health safety community concerns for Sonoma County. Um, so anybody interested in going could probably just Google uh, combating wine fraud and wine women and get the event information. It's out on Eventbrite. So that's pretty cool. And now I think it's a good time to introduce our guest, who I'm very excited to have on our show today. Victoria Coleman is with us today. Welcome, Victoria. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, Victoria is winemaker for Lobo Wines. Um, she's a graduate of the UC Davis Enology Program, and she began her winemaking journey at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars as a production assistant. But then she had a stint very, very far away that had me really, really intrigued. So you also worked at the Jade Valley Winery near, I want to say Xi'an, China. But I don't speak Chinese, so I don't know if I said it correctly. It's, uh, Victoria, tell us about this. Um, so it's Xi'an. 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 Um, so I remember... A group of Chinese, so they, uh, it's, the owner is from this little village outside, he's from Xi'an and he grew up in this little village that's outside and his, I think it was his grandmother, he would go visit her during the summers out of school and he wound up, he's currently the Dean of Architecture at USC. Oh wow. So he has a love of wine and he built winery village back in maybe 2000 began producing wine 2003 ish decided i can't support this winery so i need to find someone to bring over that can make something of this and we can promote the wine sell the wine so he comes to california or to napa uh -huh. looking for someone and he asked a wine a winemaker locally to put together a group of people that he could speak with and no one wanted to meet with him and that winemaker calls me and he's like please come to dinner because no one wants to go to China and I said I don't want to go to China either 
And we end up having dinner. And by the end of dinner, they'd invited me to just have a visit, see the winery. And I agreed to do so. And at the end of dinner, they said, you're so brave. Welcome to China. And I was like, wait, what just happened here? So <laughs> I went over to check it out. And the following year, I worked with them on their blends. And so I would go a few times a year and help them prepare for harvest and work on blending. Nice. Help with how, the menu. How, so. how different and unusual, but cool. And it gives you, it gives you a great story. So, so they're growing their own grapes there, uh, doing the whole harvest and everything. Are they similar grapes to here? Or are they completely different? They are. They are. Um, they're one of the, I think when I left UC Davis, I want to say they were number five in the world as far as grape production goes. Wow. So they have the grape varieties that we're familiar with and interesting, you know, just other, whatever they're growing that they're um, propagating, I guess. So cool. Now, China's unusual, but you also had a stint in a more traditional vein working alongside Eric Torbier at Chateau Mouton Rothschild in Bordeaux that had to have been more in line with what you were <laughs> It was, it was, but um, when I went there, it was uh, a really wet vintage. So that was in 2008 and it was right out of Davis. And uh -huh. I remember just walking the vineyards and thinking like, I don't even recognize, like I don't recognize these flavors I'm out of my league here, of course, um, but they had they had purchased an adjacent property so that's kind of where I started monitoring the fruit that was growing and then I was just like it's just so so different than California I the ripeness is not the same you know and then once I started walking the vineyards at Mouton I was like oh I get it I see it I get it but um it was yeah it was different but it was beneficial because it was that a wet year and remember in 2000 10 and 11 for me both. I had a lot of uh, challenges up at the Atlas Peak Vineyard for Lobo. So with rainfall and botrytis being in the vineyards. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So you, you really, you know, you, you've gotten the travel the globe part down here. You're back in Napa. Uh, you've now been at Lobo Wines, I think, but is that 11 years or so or 12? Right, 12. It'll be my 13th vintage actually coming up. So 12 Congratulations. years. Congratulations. That's you. nice. <laughs> and it's nice to be at one winery for a significant amount of time. And um, so that leads me to my first question is that amount of time, what are the kinds of things that you've really learned over a long period of time with uh, the Lobo um, estate wine, you know, grapes and everything, because you're all, are you all estate vineyards now? We're, we're all estate. We've always been, we've never purchased. So we've always just made wine from the fruit that's grown by uh, the wolf, the wolves. Right. The wolves. And um, the Atlas, so we have the Atlas Peak Vineyard, which is hillside. And that I wasn't working with ever, you know, starting out, started making wine in 2005, you know, before mm -hmm. finishing school and picked up Lobo 
in 2008 and that was their valley floor vineyard so it's amazing to see the differences you know hillside versus valley floor i don't i didn't necessarily drink a lot of hillside wines um other than you know starting out there but they're just they're very special the wines that are the grapes that grow and the wines that are made you know from those grapes up there so it's just really interesting just to see the difference in the climate versus you know up there versus down here and how much cooler it it started out to be but as we're experiencing the challenges with heat you know we're able to get maturity a lot or more quickly i guess up there you know with the the rising temperatures but it's just it's just been incredible just to see like the differences of you know even with working with a client up in saint Helena, just seeing those differences throughout the valley and seeing what maybe one clone is like in a different sub appellation and how it just shows itself differently very neat also, so always so amazing to me to see um, how much additional work has to go into some of those mountain vineyards from a harvest perspective because of the grade of all of those hillsides and then transporting the fruit um, around the vineyard sites. It's, it's always so interesting. I, we try to pick also when, you know, when it's really cool, very early in the morning when it's cold, but up there because of the slope of one of the blocks in the vineyard, it's so dangerous that you, you have to wait until you can see the workers have to wait. And they're so, they have to be so strong, you know, to carry that fruit up the hillside just to, it's, it's incredible. It's a skill. Yeah. It's, it's, I've fallen so many times in that vineyard. It's crazy. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, to paint the picture for our listeners the Lobo Wines background, um, the family-owned winery has been around for 20 years, but the portfolio has gro been growing all that time. Mm -hmm. can, you can you tell our listeners the whole history here? Right. So when they purchased their first vineyard in 1999 and they sold those grapes, and I think the person who was making wine from those grapes got really good scores. So they thought I'll purchase another vineyard. And that vineyard was very, so Oaknall sub-Appalachian. Um, that vineyard that the second purchase has Pinot Noir, Cabernet, um, Syrah and Chardonnay. So Oaknall grows a lot of things very well. Whereas like the other sub-Appalachians you hear, it's like mainly cab focused, you know. Um, anything but cab, I think people think here, but everyone is growing it. Um, and so they, when they bought this land, um, I started, they started out making Pinot in 2007 because Randy Wolf, who's the owner, is a huge fan of Pinot. And so he had a different winemaker at that time. And so I come in in 2008 and I start making Cabernet for, for him. And it, we started out maybe a hundred cases. And then from that, they had planted their Atlas Peak Vineyard in 2007. And so we began producing wine from that vineyard in 2009, which was still very limited. And then once like the production started, you know, kicking in up there, 
um, probably we got up to about close to 500 cases up there. And then we were selling the Syrah off and one of the wineries thought like, I don't want this portion of the Syrah. And so Randy's like, what can you do with this? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what can you do? And then I'm like, well, it's not very much. So maybe we can just do a co-fermentation like Australia or something, just a blend of Syrah with Cab or something. So that turned into their Howl, Howl blend, which they loved. And I just didn't pay a lot of attention to it because I didn't know if we were going to continue doing it or, but they were, I couldn't keep them out of the barrels, but so they have uh, that's pretty Chardonnay fun. that's produced. I don't produce the Chardonnay. I only do the red wines, but we now have, um, so we do a Pinot. So I took that Pinot project over in 2013 um, from the winemaker they had um, from 2007 through 12. So the Pinot, the Pinot Noir, the two cabs from Atlas Peak and then from Oak Knoll, the Syrah blend, I do a Rosé of Pinot and also sometimes a Merlot when it doesn't fit into the blend up. Got it. So we're maybe two now, over 13, and, 12 and years. What, what would qualify like a year that you wouldn't end up using the Merlot for your blend? Well, truthfully, what happened was the fire in 2017. I hate talking about that fire, but we didn't have any cab and we had already picked the Merlot, you know, for blending purposes. And uh, we also grow Petit Verdot up there, but so that we lost that and we only had that for 2017. Um, so we made it just to have something um, yeah. for that vintage. And then because we have less cab up there we had to replant many vines it doesn't always fit because there's there's usually more cab than um that we would have used into the blend and so it can become overwhelming so for instance in 2015 we had a lot of um shatter in the vineyard at that poor fruit set and we had we were down that whole like across the board, I think throughout Napa, maybe the percentages were down by 25%, but we were down by about 65% up on Atlas Peak. So it was a heavy part, portion of the blend at that time in 2015. Um, and I just, it doesn't, it's not reflective of the wine to have so much Merlot in it. So I just pull it out um, and I feel like we're dialing in you know, what's required to make that blend for the, that Cabernet that comes there. But um, that's, that's how we start it with the Merlot. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice wine. I really, I really enjoy it. So I'm looking forward to it. So from 17 through 19, we have one so far. Oh, that's so fun and that's <laughs> nice flexibility and um, probably get to hone in a lot on um, your Bordeaux history. But I was, that's the reason why I asked that question because I was curious. I'm like, hmm, is it a decision with the ripeness of the fruit or is it, you know, something else that's dictating the use of the Merlot versus not? So thank you for answering that question. Of course. So I wanted to mention, um, you know, you mentioned 2015 having really low, really low yields that year. But um, nevertheless, you still managed to make what I would refer to as a kick-ass cab because 
you received 96 points with <laughs> magazine on it and it was it was put on the cover i mean really all of all of your red wines here and your white wines but i know you said you don't make the white wines i mean you get fantastic scores on everything so you you're doing really well victoria <laughs> yeah, nice work victoria i was actually looking at that prior to the call i was like oh my gosh she is just doing a fantastic job here yes. all the critics are just raving about your wine so that's yeah. exciting it's a nice problem to have it's really, it's really it's been really nice like i enjoy them but it's just like i don't know you know how you think you have a house palette at that point where it's like maybe everything tastes good to you <laughs> It can be, I would agree it can be tricky. Uh, it, inevitably, it's far more your job uh, to go through all the fine notes of tasting different lots and different percentages and figuring that out, and which is why I do not try to do that kind of a job. Um, you, you mentioned um, losing the Petit Verdot in 2017, and was it due to the proximity of the, is that right, the fires in 2017? Uh, Yes. Because yes. Atlas Peak was in the yes. thick of it during the fires. Yes. And so that that was something that wasn't picked at the time before the fires. So is it something that has been required replanting or did you guys decide to just go without? We did replant. So hopefully it won't be this vintage, but hopefully next vintage we'll have something that comes from those replanted vines. But it's a little difficult just because that vineyard is just pure rock and so sometimes I walk through and I'm like did we replant these at the same time as the other vines over there because they look so different they're just you know struggling yeah exist and initially when they planted the vineyard I, I feel like the vines were planted too closely together because it's like they're struggling to search for water next to each other and I'm like when we did um, do our replanting we did correct for some spacing in some of the you know portions of the blocks that we could um, do that so they'd have a chance to establish well, what, themselves. Victoria in in the meantime then I'm a little curious um, Petit Verdot, of course, is often no more than, you know, one to three or four percent of a Cabernet blend. So, so what has been your strategy while you've been without your Petit Verdot? You know, it's often considered the oh, backbone structure. I, I need to correct. We didn't lose it. We just, we couldn't pick it. because, oh, okay. it was, Yeah, so we do have it. I, I'm sorry about that. That, that's okay. That's that's what this is for, is to make sure we get straight. <laughs> so, well, fascinating. Yes, I get that. Um, the fires kind of interrupted everybody's harvest that year, and it was, it was something else to deal with. So, uh, I'm I'm kind of curious. You take the the pinots and the cabs. And, and of course you mentioned the Merlot, which has kind of been on the side and the Syrah on the side. Um, how, what's your production like in terms of, you know, how much of that are your club members getting every year? 
the Merlot and uh, the Syrah blend tend to go to all of the club members. We don't really give mm -hmm. that to the distributors or the broker to work with, mm -hmm. um, but we have increased the production. So I believe they're picking it up hopefully in the next year, just because I feel like we've quadrupled our production for those wines. Um, not so much the Merlot, but that Syrah blend. Okay. And so uh, they get like the special small bottlings. We just did one. It's a non-vintage, but it's 26% Petit Verdot and then 74%. And it like you wouldn't, I don't think you would guess that, you know, in the wine. Um, I recognize it from the vineyard, but I like it. I don't know. It's just. I don't know that I recognize it as a cab necessarily, but I recognize that the flavor profile of the fruit that comes from that vineyard. Interesting. Well, isn't, isn't that, you know, part of the fun of your job and hopefully you're doing your job really well, at least this is what your scores here all show, is that, you know, nobody should be able to tell the percentages of the blends. It should all be completely smoothly integrated. So it just tastes fantastic. Yeah. Name of the game, right? Yes. How, how did you get interested in the wine business, Victoria? That's, uh, so I'm a Seattle native and I didn't have a lot of exposure to wine necessarily. I remember my mom, she would drink Merlot or Riesling, but I couldn't tell you a label. And you know, Washington State has a, a huge wine, um, they, wine region. And so when I moved to California, I was dating someone who was working at a winery. And so when I moved here, I wasn't expecting to find myself in the wine industry. I was studying computer science. When I left and I got a job working at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, just, it was supposed to be temporary, a position open for production assistant. So I applied for that. And I was more comfortable in the vineyard rather than really in the winery. Mm -hmm. So I thought, when the breakup happened, I thought, I'm gonna either go back home and like continue on the path, you know, I was when I came, or if I stay, I'll do viticulture because I was comfortable mm -hmm. with that. So then if I'm going to do it, then this is what I'm gonna study. And I think it was when in 2005, I made wine for someone whose company I was, it was a farming company and I made wine for him. He asked me like the year prior, and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to make wine. And then I said, well, if I do, the following year when he asked, if I do, uh, Michael Silachi had left to go to Opus. And I thought, if I can call him and he can, because at that point, I hadn't had like wine stability or anything like that. I was like, anyone can ferment, but if something goes wrong and it's someone's investment, like I don't want to you know, I don't want to have a part of in that. So if I can call him and guide him if I need, then I made the wine and I remember tasting it, you know, a couple of weeks after fermentation out of the tank. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. I have to do it again. And so while I always, when at Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, like that is the place where I cut my teeth on wine. So I basically fell in love with wine at that point. And I remember finding a bottle of like 1994 SLV in my drawer, my desk drawer. 
and the person whose uh, desk it was had come through like months later and pulled it out and said, here, take this home. And I took it home and waited and waited. And I remember when I opened it uh, with my boyfriend at the time and I, we took a sip and we both looked and we're like, yeah, this is it. Like it was, it was just, it's one of the wines I'll just remember forever. Nice. That is great. That's a wonderful story about how, how you get there. And um, were there any particular experiences at UC Davis that kind of stuck out to you in your memory in terms of that really helped propel you forward in your career? Not so. The only, because I had the practical experience going in since I was I had that wine project going into Davis um, so that it was different to see like on a uh, like a trial like a pro school project size versus like I was really making wine um, but all the principle and theory you know behind it I was grateful to get because I didn't know that you know as I was making wine if something went wrong and for what reason it went wrong. Like sometimes you know what to do when something goes wrong, but you don't really know why. And so with UC Davis, you know why. That you get all the, the, the pieces filled in. Yeah. Which is cool. So then how did you end up getting connected with Randy and Chris Wolf? And we should make sure people know that's a Wolf, W-U-L-F-F. -F. Yes. So at the time, uh, the farming company that I was working with farmed for Randy and Chris. And at that time, they only had their Pinot. And so he decided to make, I think he was at their release party. And I was in France at the time. So I didn't get to meet him up front. But coming back from France, I knew that I'd be meeting and interviewing with him. Uh -huh. And so that's the connection, how we ended up meeting. And he was still very much the attorney at that time. So he was still living, I think it was Piedmont. Um, so in the East Bay. So I didn't really get to have as much interaction as I get to have now. So he's, they're such great people. They're like family. I mean, I've been with them forever. I can't believe this time has flown by the way it has. <laughs> And we're doing seven wines now. Well, that's yeah. fun. That's I do great. Stuff. Yeah. That's really fun. And I remember reading a story on the website about how when they first purchased their first vineyard, uh, I think on uh, the valley floor, um, they decided to go against standard practice and do super tight rows, which means you cannot get a, a, a standard tractor down there. You can get a lawn, you know, a lawn tractor down there. Um, but otherwise, you're, you're pretty much manually working the vineyard. Have, have they been supportive in kind of experimental viticultural practices and management of the vineyards? They are. They're, they're very receptive. Um, because, and it's great because we meet, you know, at the beginning of the year to talk about pruning and just what we're going to do throughout the year. And then we catch up. Um, so that it's great that he's in Napa full time now. So 
we catch up because I'll walk through and I may see something that didn't go the way that we had discussed. And sometimes it's easier to have him in the middle because he's a mediator. He shouldn't. <laughs> so it works out in that sense. But I always like to say like, you sh I mean, we shouldn't be mediating this. Like it should be this. <laughs> like, this is for you, your wine. We're, we're all here for this, but um, he's, he's very receptive to like learning what needs to be done and you know why and making sure that it gets done. So, um, and then it was just like the, the vineyard you're speaking of, I believe is the Atlas Peak Vineyard and everything has to be tended by hand. And that's why I was saying where the vines, they're so close together that they're struggling in, you know, in the rock to exist. And so when we replanted, we gave the vines a little bit more space Less competition. Um, yeah. For nutrients. And he listened to that. So that was nice. And he listened to the rootstock. So that was nice. <laughs> That's always a good thing. And you're, you're quite right. When somebody's profession is, uh, as a professional mediator uh, in the legal profession, um, they're going to have good listening skills. <laughs> um, more so than the, the average person by a long shot. Uh, so have you had any particular mentors throughout your career, Victoria, that you felt like they gave you a real help with direction or skill sets or one piece of advice? Um, I could say Michael Silachi, who's at Opus One. Um, he's he's uh, spoken at one of our events in the past. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's, you know, I, as being like a consulting winemaker, I feel like I'm on an island by myself sometimes. And, you know, there are times I'm in custom crush facilities where, I mean, maybe I, I encounter other winemakers and we talk about what we're doing or what's going on. But anything that goes on that he feels I can benefit from at his winery, he'll invite me just, um, I think it was last week he had Dr. Bolton, who from UC Davis, he's developed some program for the staff at Opus One, just to kind of, anything from like the beginning stages of just making wine, um, clean, how important cleanliness is in a facility, um, just fermentation. So he's built this program and he had the first portion, like the first session last week and I got to sit in on the session. So it's just like, that's like a great experience. It's, it's great for me to be able to do that because I find that having started out at the time, not starting out in a winery necessarily and not having like feedback or, you know, just like a sounding wall, I guess. Um, I haven't had the chance or the opportunity to really have such guidance and I get that through him, I guess, at that capacity, you know. Great. And, and you mentioned that oftentimes, you know, you'll find other winemakers out there and you'll talk about issues you're having or um, things that you're seeing with the wine. Um, do you find yourself at all going back to your, um, your, your textbooks or um, your academia for answers as well? Or is it more just along like a winemaker network that the winemaking side there's the winemaker network. I mean, because everyone has different experiences, you know, 
Um, but I always, I have my textbooks like nearby. Well, I was going to say, but it's a cookbook. I was going to pull one out and say I have one right here. But um, I do. And I use it a lot also like for China because that's how we communicate, I guess, more so. Um, it's easier to communicate on like academic on an academic level or versus, you know, right. sometimes I'm drawing di diagrams and, you know, taking pictures and sending that over and like, this is what you should, cause it's difficult to explain, but you know, everyone like science is science and, you know, we each have an understanding of that. So I do go to my textbooks a lot. And the impact of, um, of being a winemaker or a consulting winemaker during this time of social distancing and COVID, and obviously you can't fly over um, to China right now. How has that impacted your decisions in the vineyard? Um, I feel like the vineyard, um, I feel like maybe it's least impacted, do you know, like, because we have our meetings and I'm not with, the crew, I mean, the crews are there. They're all, I feel like nothing on the side of production for me has necessarily changed. I felt like bottling with this, you know, pandemic just because no one could safely be apart from one another, you know, working that they were just working so closely together. And then just with, I feel like with wine work in the cellar, or anything in the vineyard, nothing's really changed for us. We're just going about it as we always have. We're just, you know, mm -hmm. just being protected with our masks and gloves and just trying not to be too closely. I mean, I've caught myself in the cellar tasting something. I'm like, here, taste this, you know, and then I'm like, oh no, get your own glass, you know? So it's just remembering that. And I don't have that contact necessarily, you know, with, vineyard workers um not like that you know interesting yeah i'm curious and follow up on that victoria will lobo wines and your harvest be impacted by the current cancellation of the visa program for harvest workers will that impact you or do you have built-in crews for that we don't have built-in crews um It'll, it'll be interesting to see. And I haven't, we haven't had that conversation with our vineyard management uh, team yet. Mm -hmm. But it's coming. It's coming. It's coming really <laughs> fast. Oh, goodness. Yeah, so we, we have the, the vineyard, the vineyard, um, the vineyard management teams um, that are out there, like they do have a set workforce, but we're still unsure of the impacts um, because a lot of these numbers of the workforce that they have available and disposable to them aren't always, um, you know, numbers that are readily available. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see. And then I know from just in the general Napa Valley or, you know, any of any of the California winemaking region, the interns that usually come from around the world to help us with harvest in the cellar 
um, it's, it's been really difficult to, to determine how are we going to have enough staff and who can we pivot from hospitality to help out in the cellar during this point in time. So I know a lot of um, leaders around the, the state are having to make those types of decisions right now. Yeah, that's another issue we're facing in our cellar as well, because we were, we were, I think we started out last year thinking we'll have, you know, the interns come from wherever. And because we've always had, I always feel like we've always had the issue with the winery being so small. And so they're always waiting to see if they get into a bigger winery first or a better winery. So we lose out in that way. But if we, you know, have someone that's designated coming over from another country, that's going to be with, it's kind of, it's impacted us in that way where we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how we're going to go about providing, you know, work in the cellar or workers in, to the cellar. Um, and Victoria, I did also mention, or I did also see online that um, that Chris herself, she also um, the the owner of of Lobo Wines, also has a um, a master's degree and has been a huge advocate for women and for education and. She sat on numerous associations. Is um, you know, is that affect some of the decisions that are made at Lobo Winery? No, that's been I think kept pretty separate. Um, she she does a lot of the work for Lobo on the business side of things, um, and I've only I've known her to take off and do her consulting, you know, uh, conferences, things like that. But she's mostly just been just focused on the winery. And she doesn't, she doesn't ever really talk about that part of her, her business or her life, you know. And it's funny, it's, I was like, I can tell you what Randy does. And I know that she does that, but we never, and he'll talk about work a little bit every now and again, but I know what he does. And with her, it's just like, oh, she's in a conference, you know, on the other side of the country. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then um, I just sort of did a little research on myself for myself on the website. And the website had mentioned that, you know, she was a past president of the Piedmont, Piedmont League of Women Voters and just a sustainer in the East Bay Junior League, which is just a fantastic organization to develop um, folks for success. And then she served as 10 years on board, the board of directors for EdSource, which is a nonpartisan non organization that works to engage Californians on key education challenges with the goal of enhancing learning success. So I was thinking that, you know, if she's still really involved in that. I'm sure she's really busy now because as um, the world tries to figure out this next phase and what education is going to look like. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, very, they both, you know, both Randy and Chris have really fascinating backgrounds. So it's got to make for interesting chats around a table and or conversations over a, a glass of wine. Yeah. Um, I was curious, Victoria, if you were in on um, some of the development and or evaluation of the logo and the labels. You mentioned the going to silk screening, but I absolutely, I think it, it is really special. The, the vision of the wolf's eyes 
kind of peeking through and everything. So I was curious about it. It's actually their son who designed the label. Great job. They have two <laughs> sons. Family. This one, he's, um, I believe it's in a high school. He's an art school teacher. I believe it's high school. And he's also a graphic designer. So uh, when they designed, when he first designed the label, I think it started out such that, so wolf pups have blue eyes when they're born. So the Pinot has blue eyes on, on the label. And as the pups evolve, they turn like yellow or green or amber, I think it is. And uh -huh. so the Cabernets be, had become amber, um, the Chardonnay yellow, and then we had it where it was the Atlas Peak. Uh, so it started out with a paper label. And we did that until 2011. And then 12, we went to Silkscreen and the Atlas Peak and the Chardonnay, I believe, have precious metal for their eyes. And so it looks like jewelry is really pretty. Ooh, wow. And I remember walking by and I was like, that looks like jewelry. And so Randy kept that specific label for Atlas Peak right. um, for that reason. What precipitated the, the decision to make the jump to silk screen? Um, I know for some people it's production and others it's a cer certain level of sales. Do you remember anything about that? I think it was well, initially, so when we came out with that first label, it, it was a very busy label. It had everything on it. And I think with distributors, they had a hard time like marketing for that label just mm -hmm. because it was too busy. And so then we moved to just like a white or cream paper label, but same concept of the eyes. And it was just kind of like blah. Randy wasn't really feeling that. So he said, well, let's look into the silk screening. And he had all these samples and I went to their house. And um, so it wasn't, it was just, it was purely aesthetics, I guess. Um, right. Just trying to find something that everyone would love to look at. Well, it is. It's a, it's a very attractive and very uh, original and unusual label. So um, I'm sure it made your distributors really happy because it gave the brand a much more distinctive look to match what's inside the bottle. Um, and I think it's kind of cool. Now, your club is also, of course, named after uh, Wolf. It's not called the Wolf Club. It's called the Alpha Club. And for anybody who doesn't know about dogs and wolves, the alpha dog is the lead. <laughs> yes. And so, um, and I believe the rest are just like, there's a distinction between the alpha members and then just the pack members. Mm -hmm. And so I think the pack members are just people who are signed up on the mailing list and you're offered whatever discounts when you order or shipping discounts or whatnot. And alpha that's probably the one paid membership where you can actually choose what you want to come in your right. shipment. Right. The website says 12 to 18 bottles a year, uh, shipped out three times a year, October, February, or May. Um, and you can choose um, Chardonnay only, white only, white and red, or red only, um, Red Wolf, um, all of which makes sense. Uh, uh, on that. So, and of course, like all good wine clubs, members um, get discounts on their purchases and off their case purchases. 
Um, so if this sounds intriguing to our listeners, um, you, you want to find yourself at lobowine.com because um, you'll find all the information will be there. Is there, are you guys doing anything right now with um, virtual tastings or limited appointments? How have you been handling this whole we, change in the world? <laughs> we've, uh, we've done a lot of virtual tastings. We started out early on with this um, pandemic. Just, we went through all of the wines that were released or getting ready to be released. And then we kind of ran out of themes, I guess. Um, but we've also offered to do virtual tastings for anyone who wants to purchase, mm -hmm. I guess, a tasting package and um, set an appointment to sit down and taste. Up at the caves at Soda Canyon is where we make the wine and they're offering tasting outside. Um, nice. So I haven't seen too many people come yet, but it is offered and I know also, they're doing virtual tastings, but Lobo, we're, yeah, we're doing it. Very nice. It's Very cool. And fun. In, in, just it's interesting. It's so different, like, then. The world is different yeah. in a very big way. I've, I love that, um, that I'm just looking at the, the option that you had mentioned about, you know, you obviously can join, like Marcia said, their, their wine clubs. You can be a leader in the wine club and or you can just join the pack which is really exciting because then you're notified of all of the limited release wines and you can still purchase with um some savings so that's a nice way to get in and try and see if you wanted to elevate up the levels of the wolf pack yeah good way to go so victoria now that you've been doing this almost 13 years with lobo wine um what expertise would you like to hand hand off to somebody younger? And I don't mean like turn it over. I'm I'm referring more to, you know, what do you know now that you didn't, you know, that you wish you knew then? And hindsight, I guess, is what I'm after. Um, I felt well a couple things. I remember coming out of Davis, and like I said, I was already with a wine project, but there were so many people that left school thinking like they were just going to walk into a winemaking position. So I always feel like you should be humble yeah. <laughs> and um, ask, ask questions because you don't know everything. You can't like take everything with you. You know, um, like I said, pulling out my textbook still <laughs> to remind myself um, of what I've learned, but ask lots of questions. And they also, I saw people with egos and someone told me, not me personally, to leave my ego <laughs> off, you know, out of it because the vineyard and the brand will be there much longer than like you will be, I will be long after. Um, that's one thing. Another thing I think also the time that I came out of school, um, we had that recession hit. And so I don't think there were a lot of hirings going on at the time. And I was lucky enough to be able to go to France and then come back to a pro an existing project and then pick up Lobo. So I feel like even though I've gone to France and to China, but maybe I didn't go around as much as I would have liked or have been attached to 
like a known winery or a known brand. Um, Cause it's hard. Randy and Chris have worked very hard to, you know, get their brand in front of people, get me in front of people. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of hard work. And I've worked with, you know, brands that are similar to their size where they don't want to be a part of the vintners or a part of the grape growers. And so it's hard to get in front of groups, you know? Um, so maybe do more before, I don't know. Don't, I feel like almost, I, I didn't pigeonhole myself, but I feel like it just kind of happened because of the circumstances. So just get as much experience and exposure, I guess, as you can, you know. Sounds like sage advice to me. Definitely a great way to go. Um, Victoria, uh, your uh, Barbara Walters question, it's not about a tree. Uh, do you, do you have a vision of where you imagine you're going to be in five years or where you hope Lobo Wines will be in another five years? Well, I would like to have a project. I'm like, I have to do it. I keep saying I want to do something. You know, when you're making wine for people, it's kind of, it's what they want, what they would like to see. And I would kind of just see what I would like to see. Um, even though they allow me to be creative. Um, and I'm glad that they have a voice in their project because there are people who, you know, don't care sometimes. But I see myself, I think, with a nice project of my own down the road. Very exciting. <laughs> yes. We know somebody you should talk to about that. You know Theodora Lee. Do you know Theodora I Lee? I met her one yeah. day. I've met her. She's fascinating. And uh, she, she'd make a good mentor in that route because, of course, she did the whole thing of figuring out and, and doing soil analysis and geology analysis about what would grow there and, you know, the sunlight hours per year and, you know, that whole thing. Um, and anyway, good. Pr- I highly recommend chatting with her. Uh, doing doing your own project, she'd be a wealth of knowledge for you. So, um, what what before we go because we're just about out of time, Victoria. What else would you like the Wine Women Radio Hour listeners to know? Uh, about myself or Lobo? I guess you get to choose. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Well. Maybe I can pull it in together. Um, just, I know. I I guess I would like to maybe just kind of address what's been like going on in the world because I feel like it's never. I always feel like it's people are so afraid to approach, um, like even Black Lives Matter. I haven't had a conversation in Napa about it that's not that's not true actually um i did have a friend who reached out to me and so we're trying to like work on something that's where it's not like you do something and it goes away but um you just we're trying to do something that has like long staying power you know down the road and so they're just you know i haven't i i haven't felt 
personally prejudices, you know, that, mm -hmm. that, are, that are here, that exist. But I know of people that have and just like, let's just all like be kind to one another and agreed, you know, just be more receptive of people from the outside coming in, I guess, um, that want to be a part of this community. I knew coming in that I didn't see many people like me, but it didn't really phase me. And it still doesn't, it doesn't really necessarily, it doesn't phase me, but when I talk to people who look at me here and they're just like, how are you here? How do you do it? Um, you were fearless. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I just, just like for people to just be more accepting, I guess, of people from different walks of life, you know, and. It, it, I, I'm just going to say uh, it's obviously easier for Caucasians in this industry because I believe uh, there was just out an article about of the 10,000 um, wineries in America, only 50 of them are black owned. That's a really tiny percentage. Uh, there's the, the uh, African American Vintners Association, if I have the name right. Uh, is I think 50-ish members, it's not too big, they're growing. So, um, you know, they all make great wine. These are wines to seek out and you can get great information about them. We just um, did a show, Misty, help me out here. Uh, the, um, the wine road that Alicia was telling us about. Oh, the yes. Wine route. Did, yeah. you, did you participate in the diversity wine route, Victoria? Okay. We're going to get you, we're going to help you get you connected more too. <laughs> yeah, the diversity wine route is fantastic. That was great because that was all um, uh, 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 black winemakers uh, from around the country and they met virtually um, <laughs> to do, they usually do it in, in LA in July. Marcia, there was also a fantastic panel that was put on by the Napa Valley Vintners um, last month, just really talking about diversity and how to promote and encourage that in the workplace. And they had some folks on from ranging from the Napa Valley um, Police of Chief, I believe it was, or someone from the law enforcement side of the business, um, a PR and marketing specialist. And, it was really interesting to hear, you know, their perspectives um, working in the Napa Valley, being immersed in the Napa Valley, you know, and, and having, you know, their own identity of being an African-American in Napa um, come out to play. So that, um, that was interesting and that was there. I was very excited to see that happen because it really did help increase awareness and, um, you know, and something that really hit home for all of us because we're in line and, you know, we don't always realize it, but um, there is that inherent, you know, privilege that comes along with um, some different skin colors. So it's, um, it's good to open our eyes to that. And knowing that I'm, I know when I was in the program at UC Davis, I got to the end of the program and there was another black person and I thought, where did you come from? Because <laughs> I've been here all this time and it was like I was leaving and I, I think he still had a couple years and I don't know that he ever finished, but I don't know when I'll see people on the present, like me, on the production side of things 
Whereas I know that, you know, there's sales and marketing, right. um, you know, public relations. I know that there are people like me in that field of this business, you know, not many, of course, but I would, it'd be interesting just to see how to get in front of people. You know, I didn't think like, oh, I want to be a winemaker, you know, I still don't know how, because I didn't grow up with wine on my table, you know. Right. It is. Yeah, it, it is. It is fascinating. And, you know, I think that that will that will definitely come, you know, it's definitely on the horizon. And, you know, even just myself graduating from college a couple decades ago and taking part in some minority associations growing up um, Mexican American and, you know, finding out how how few leaders there really were in enterprise at that point in time. And we've already seen sort of that shift occur and the shift with women in the workplace and um, you know, I mean, we still have long strides to make, but um, we've, it, there's definitely been some great improvements. So hopefully we can continue to go forward instead of backwards with sometimes the way it feels like our society is taking us. Yeah. We're getting there. Ladies, we're going to get to celebrate our hundredth year of having the vote next at the end of next month. So uh, baby steps of progress. <laughs> So each, each and every way. So uh, that sounds like a good place for us to stop. If our listeners want to learn more, we'll have links in, um, in on the page where uh, uh, the podcast uh, plays uh, to lobowine.com. Uh, and of course, folks, uh, you can reach out to Victoria. She's on LinkedIn. Uh, you've got a profile out there. And uh, you can reach out directly. So Victoria, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, thank folks, you. get out there and taste some Lobo wine because it's going to be delicious. Missy, yeah, thank I'm, you. I'm waiting to add one of those, um, the piercing eyes to my cellar. So <laughs> I encourage everyone to add some piercing Lobo eyes. Yeah, beautiful Maybe. stuff. The Atlas Peak. There yeah, you go. More so. Jewelry. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Victoria. Thanks, Thank Missy, you. and thank, thank you, listeners.